0: Take that Bible that you're holding this morning, look over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. We come to what could be one of the most important messages that I've ever preached here. How to handle sin, how to handle temptation. And uh, actually I've titled the message, Who's to Blame? That's at the heart of this section. But let me read for you. Uh, James chapter 1, and I'll just read uh, 13 through 15. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself does not, or he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire." Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Who is to blame for temptation? That is the heart of these next six verses. The the flow of the text is this. If God is bringing or allowing, I like to say bringing, trials in my life to produce that character quality of endurance, to produce perfection in us, or maturity, to produce completion in us. Here's the question. If I fail the test, is God tempting me? It's very possible that some, to whom James wrote had misunderstood the entire context of trials and temptation. You remember a few weeks back very clearly that we said in Genesis 22.1, and we looked at a number of passages, that God tested Abraham. That's what it says. God tested him. God tested him to produce maturity, perfection, so forth, and we established that. We noted in other verses, such as Deuteronomy 8 2, that it says there of the nation of Israel that God was testing them to see what was in their hearts. And so we know there's a theology of testing. But the question would come back to us this morning what happens if you fail the test? What happens if the trial that comes your way? Go south on you real quick. What happens when that trial that comes to strengthen you causes you to jump tracks and you get off and it becomes a temptation to sin and you fail? Then this question, is God to blame? Is He to blame? Now, certainly, if I looked at it from another uh, sector, if you will, we're well aware that modern psychology has alleviated man of any guilt in many cases and has alleviated man in many cases of any responsibility for their actions. I think you would agree with me that in some ways we've become a nation of victims. Let me give you a couple of examples and I'm just trying to think we do it in our faith but we do it in our society. I'm thinking about I read about the man who was shot and he was paralyzed while committing a burglary in New York and the man who was the shot and paralyzed, if you can imagine it, while he's committing this burglary, recovered damages from the store owner who shot him. His attorney, the thief's attorney, told the jury that the man was first of all a victim of society. The attorney said that he was driven to crime by economic disadvantages and now the lawyer said he is the, in, he is the victim of the insensitivity of the man who shot him. And because of the man's callous disregard to the thief's plight as a victim, the poor criminal will be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. The jury agreed and the store owner paid a large settlement. I mean, this stuff just happens all the time. I'm thinking some of these you might remember after mugging in another account and brutally beating an elderly New York man in the subway. Bernard McCummings was shot. He mugs him, beats him, leaves him there. And as he's fleeing, he gets shot. And um, he became permanently paralyzed as well. And he sued. And he sued the city for $4.8 million in compensation from the New York Transit Authority. The man he mugged, a cancer patient, is still paying doctor bills, and McCummings, whom the courts deemed the greater victim, is now a multimillionaire. I mean, this stuff happens all the time. Certainly some of you remember a few years back, a San Francisco man murdered a supervisor. But he also murdered the mayor, George Moscone, because he said that he consumed too much junk food. Now, I'm not joking here, especially he consumed too much hostess Twinkies, okay? He claimed that the junk food, the Twinkies, made him act irrationally. That, that might be true. They might have that effect. And thus, the famous Twinkie defense was born, and the lenient jury bought the line and produced a verdict of voluntary, voluntary manslaughter rather, rather than murder, And they ruled that the junk food resulted in diminished mental capacity, which mitigated the killer's guilt. I mean, this is just what's happening all the time. I think one of my favorite ones was the guy in Los Angeles who was robbing an LA Unified School District, and he's on top of the roof getting ready to find entry into a building. And as he's on top of the roof, he stepped through a skylight and he fell down below onto the desk, broke his leg, you know, broke his hip, and he sued LA Unified for a lack of clarity of where he should have walked on top of the roof. And he won. He won the case. And he sued the school district. I mean, it is entirely possible in America today to commit the most notorious crimes and get off scot-free simply by blaming some imaginative mental or even emotional disorder or by inventing some kind of infliction to explain you are not responsible for what you have done. I mean, if you were to go out from here and take the American Psychiatric Association, this is an organization, they publish a book to help therapists diagnose new diseases. And that book is called The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And it lists the following disorders, and I'm only giving you a few. One of them is called The Oppositional Defiant Disorder. Say, what's that? Here's what it is. Quote, a pattern of negativistic, hostile, and defiant behavior. See, so if you have that kind of behavior now you're classified with a disease. There's another one called the histrionic personality disorder, which is a pervasive pattern of excessive emotionality and attention-seeking. That is now a disorder. Your children might have that, but you can just tell them that they have that disorder. And it lists another one. Here's another one, antisocial personality disorder. It's a pattern of antisocial behavior beginning in childhood or early adolescence and continuing into adulthood. Now, all these things, do they not? They mitigate responsibility. But as we come to the text here, The scriptures tell us something far different than that. James is going to write under the inspiration of the Spirit of God that man indeed is responsible for his sin and that man indeed is responsible for temptation. Now, I really think that as we come to the text, there was confusion Maybe upon the Greek word here listed, if you go down and look in your Bible in verse 13, it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. That word for temptation there is in the root word for trials back in verse 2 and trials back in verse 12, okay? And so we've got to understand how that word can be used in a couple of different ways. Let me say it this way to you. Two things. Number one, trials, that Greek word is parasmos, can have a beneficial purpose in our life. You would agree. We just got done preaching on that. They come to strengthen your faith. In other words, God sends trials into your life, into my life, to perfect our faith to mature our faith, to mature our understanding of Christ. And certainly, when you look at that opening banner, that they have a beneficial purpose, no wonder James would say in verse 2, count it all, what? Joy. The joy comes because of what is being produced in us in verse 3 and 4. And so they have a beneficial purpose. Look down in verse 12. Certainly, James says there, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. But very clearly, blessed is that man, blessed is that woman who remains steadfast in the midst of that trial. So they come to us for the purpose of, number one, having a beneficial effect upon us. But secondly... These trials, or I could even use the word temptation here, also have a bad sense to them. They can become a temptation towards evil and sin. So when you get to verse 13 here, let no one say three times, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with what? Or by evil. And here in this context, as we move into temptation, it is a temptation towards sin. So you've got to look at the context in which that word comes to us. Certainly in Mark 14, 38, when Jesus told the disciples to keep watching and praying that you may never come into what? Temptation. That is a temptation with an evil desire attached to it. And so sometimes it depends the context and it depends the source. Luke 4.13, after the temptation of Christ, it said when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him for a more opportune time. There, obviously, when the devil is coming at the person of Christ, he is not seeking to perfect his faith in a trial. He is seeking actually to bring a temptation for him to relinquish who he is. So the context determines the meaning, and the outcome, if you will, depends on our response to trials and temptation. So the word can be used for a beneficial purpose and a factor. Secondly, that word parasmos can be used towards evil and sin as a temptation towards that. How we respond is the key. When trials come, they come for the purpose of strengthening our faith, However, and here's the point, when we fail to obey God, when we fail to persevere in trial, when we doubt God, when we become in the context double-minded, God is not the one to blame, nor is God ever responsible for our sin. Okay, so as we come to the text here in 13 down through verse 18, we're asking this question, who is to blame for our sin? Now, as we step into this, you know that we've looked at the first theme that he gives us in the book of James, that number one, faith is tested in our trials. And now we come to the second one in this book, that faith is tested in temptation, That's the flow of the text. Now, what James does here in 13 down through 18 is present two vital truths that reveal the source of our temptation, and then he corrects any erroneous thoughts about the character of God. Okay? So he's going to deal with number one, the source of our temptation. Then secondly, he's going to deal with the character of God and make sure that we have a right view of God in this, okay? So let's look at the first truth this morning, is the source of our temptation, the source of our temptation. And as you follow the argument of the writer here, he's going to state for us a rejection, okay? Then he's going to provide a reason for that rejection. And then he's going to clarify the reality of the temptation. So first he states a rejection, then a reason, then clarifying the reality. But let's look first at the rejection that is stated. So important. The rejection that is stated. Look at the text in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted. Now, it says there, if you underline that in verse thirteen, let no one say, and James has this in his mind, let no one say in word or in thoughts it's really strong. Let no man James is making this statement, make such a claim. In other words, to make such a claim is preposterous, And that little phrase there in verse thirteen, let no one say when he is tempted is actually in the middle voice. So that what James is saying is, let no one say to himself. You say, well, what were they saying? Look down at the text again. It says that I am being tempted by God. And James is communicating here that possibly some, in the midst of difficult trials... We're blaming God for their failure, okay? James says you must terminate, is the thought, all slanderous thoughts about God. And when he makes that statement there, as he opens in verse 13, let no one say, it's really even just a, a rebuke. Let no one say, it's, it's a very strong rebuke. Now, it's interesting there in verse 13 that within the, the bounds of the language, you could actually say, let no one say either directly that God is tempting me, or you could use the phrase, let no one even remotely say that God is tempting me. And James chooses the latter there. In other words, it could be that some to whom he writes were remotely indirectly suggesting that God is the one to blame. And what James opens up this text for us and says, in this rejection, let no woman ever say that. Let no man ever think that. Let no person in this body at Grace Church of the Valley even ever remotely suggest that if God brings the trial and you get into a temptation and you fail the temptation, then God is the one to blame. Now, you're well-versed, as, you know, with the scripture. You think of Paul, or in Corinthians, you could probably say it with me, where it says um, where it talks about the, the temptation that comes, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is, is what? Common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be what? Tempted beyond what you're able. But with every temptation, he will provide you a way of what? Escape. Make, I mean, be clear on this. God is tempting no one to evil. My friend Kent Hughes, who pastored in Chicago, told of a young woman who had come to Christ in a very marvelous way. She came to Christ. She was a new person. It was beautiful. He said to behold, but sadly, her troubled husband didn't follow suit as she had so dearly hoped for. And after a year of continuing marital disappointment, she sought help from a counselor. And instead of receiving help, she became the the victim of professional seduction. It began with extravagant sympathy it began, to, it began to reveal itself in compliments about her attractiveness, then subtly suggestive comments, and she was seduced, and there followed the history of a relationship that further damaged her spiritual condition. But Kent said, when she came to my wife and me, she was a ruined person, seething with bitterness, seething with rage, to be sure, no question, she was the victim of an unprincipled male in professional sheep's clothing. But Kent Hughes said amazingly, it was neither to him nor herself that she placed ultimate blame. Rather, she said through clenched teeth, quote, I asked God to lead me to the right person, and he led me to this man. It's God's fault. He is to blame for what happened. And that was her understanding she blamed God. And I would tell you, in 25 years of pastoral ministry, I know a lot of people who do that. I know a lot of people who are angry. I know a lot of people who felt like God allowed this to happen to them. Scottish poet Robert Burns put it this way when he wrote this poem. He said, thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong and listening to their witching voice." has often led me wrong. I mean, Burns, in essence, blames God for his sensual desire. This is what happens. You have a trial. You don't respond right. That trial turns into a temptation. And before you know it, rather than taking responsibility, rather than taking the guilt for the sin, you begin to blame God. I'm thinking of a friend of mine many years ago. High school quarterback. I used to just, be at my high school, his brother was in my wedding. This guy was probably a sophomore when I was in, a senior. And I used to just go out and watch the guy throw the ball. Phenomenal. Just, he had a rocket arm. Scouts were at the practice, at the field, and this guy was going somewhere. He had an arm like a guy that used to play where I grew up named John Elway. This was the next John Elway. And as he went back in 10th grade, he rose up to throw like this, and a linebacker came from nowhere, caught him right up underneath his shoulder, lifted him off the ground and just pinned him down, shattered his shoulder. I mean, he's just done for the year. I remember him being carted off, thinking, I'm going to make a comeback. So he goes into a surgery, and he has a surgery because he broke his rotator cuff. He couldn't throw the ball. And then he comes out, and it wasn't done right. His arm pops in, and it pops out. He's got range of motion, but he's got no strength to it. So the ball coming off his hand doesn't work. So then he has to go back into a second surgery. And then the doctor butchered him. He wound him up too tight. So that as he came out of the surgery, he had no motion now and he couldn't throw the ball. And the guy went from a rocket arm to either it being too loose to being wound too tight. But let me jumpstart this and go forward that second surgery wasn't successful and it led to a third surgery. And then it led to a fourth surgery. And then it led to a fifth surgery. And it led to a sixth surgery to the point where they finally had to get him over to the Los Angeles doctor's doctor named Curlin Job. And they looked at him and they said, who's butchered you? And so they finally got him wound up and put back together. But by that time, his high school career is over. But what's interesting is he began to serve the Lord. But as he began to deal with the pain, he couldn't handle the pain. So he began to take Vicodin for his arm, like some of the pro athletes do. And as he began to take this, he began to become addicted to it. So that by the time his prescription would run out, he's now on it. Okay? And now to make sure he can keep up his habit, he went into a doctor's office, stole the prescription pad, that's a no-no, right? And began to scribble his own prescription to the point where as he was a youth pastor, it finally caught up to him and they went into his local church and cuffed him and brought him out, lost his wife, lost his kids to a horrible divorce. But what's amazing in all of that, if you were to catch up with him, who was he mad at? God. God, you knew that if I rose up, this would happen. God, you're sovereign enough that you knew that that linebacker would come out of nowhere and light me up. God, you ruined my career. And he had to walk through the bitterness of that. Listen, Grace Church of the Valley, I get what James is saying. There are people who figured, hey, if God brought the trial, sent the trial, and he's dialing it up in a sovereign way, and that trial, that parosmos, turns into a temptation, you begin to blame God for what's happened to you. And James wants to be very clear about the character of God. Let not, none of you, let no one, not even directly and even hear the word, even indirectly and remotely ever blame God for your sin. I mean, one author said, like the poor man who blames God for his poverty when he becomes a thief and steals and thinks justified in stealing because he was poor and he blames his circumstances... Or like the drunk who goes out and wrecks his car and kills somebody and in the process blames his wife for his unhappy union and an unhappy marriage. Or he blames his business for driving him to drink or blames the pressures and feels, and feels excused from any real guilt. Listen, men blame God for creating, blame God for creating their circumstances. James says, listen, uh-uh. I want to just clarify with you. God may test you to strengthen your faith, but he never tempts you to submarine your faith. And you can never look at yourself as a victim of God's providence. But I know people who do that all the time. I really do. I know missionary workers, just angry pastors who are angry. And I don't know if most Christians go as far to see God as the direct tempter, but they do believe that God indirectly is to blame by allowing them to be in a certain situation. The student who cheats just happened to sit next to somebody who cheated, right? Or the child who steals, or the party goer and his friends, or the woman and her counselor. And ultimately the person is saying, God, you're responsible. And again, they reason if God sends the trials, he also sends temptation. So we begin to blame God for sin. Listen, this is just human nature, isn't it? We're always blaming someone. And you can jot back into your mind and even remember in the garden when Adam said, remember Adam sinned. And and remember what Adam said as God came to him in the cool of the garden of the day? Remember what he said? The woman whom you gave me to be with me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. In essence, right? Adam was blaming who? God. He said, all I know, God, is I woke up one morning and there was Eve. I went to sleep that night with no one who even looked like me and corresponded to me. And I woke up and here she was. And you know what, God, the woman you gave me. When God came to Eve, you remember what she said? She said that the serpent, what, deceived me. Now, that's true in a certain sense. He did deceive her, but he began to, she began to blame it on the serpent. So Adam said, don't blame me, blame Eve. And it's called blame shifting. And we, like Adam's children, like to blame shift our sin on someone else. And sometimes, here in this context, we even blame God. Theologian Will Rogers no, it's not. He's not a theologian. But he said that there are two errors in American history. One is the passing of the buffalo, and the other one is the passing of the buck, okay? And I just think as it relates to this, people pass the buck, and James wants to refute this claim that God tempts anyone to evil. Yes, God, God is sovereign, but let me help you, okay? God never, ever, 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 ever ordains your sin, okay? So the rejection is this, let no one say when he is being tempted that I am being tempted by God. You say, well, what's the reason? Well, look at verse 13. Look what he says there. He says, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts, it says, no one. So the rejection stated is followed here, secondly, and in the reason given. And here's the reason given that God tempts no one, is it says there, for God himself cannot be tempted with what? Evil. In other words, he's talking about the character of God. James says that God is unable to be tempted because he himself in his character is inexperienced with evil. The thought there of that phrase is that he has no capacity for evil. In other words, God is not even vulnerable to evil. He, in a word, is untemptable. So his person and his holiness and his nature make that claim impossible. Now, look again at the text. You can see it it there. He cannot be tempted with evil. Evil itself is abhorrent to God. Evil can't penetrate the holy nature of God. The very thought of evil, the subject of evil, the deeds of evil repulses God because God is holy. Thinking of the writer Habakkuk who said in Habakkuk one thirteen that your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Listen, there's no evil within God. Those seraphim, remember, that were around the throne of God, that were crying out in antiphonal praise, kept saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Do you remember when we studied 1 John? Remember that phrase? You probably know it by heart. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the who? From the Father. It's not from the Father. It comes from the world. So God's nature and holiness make it impossible for God to be tempted. And as a result of that, look at verse 13 again. It says, he cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself, what does it say? Tempts how many? No one, right? How could it be that if God cannot be tempted with evil, could he ever tempt another, is the thought. In other words, he is incapable of tempting someone to sin because he himself has no capacity for sin. Oh, God indeed may test us for our good, for his glory, but he never, ever, under any circumstance, ever tempts someone to sin. You say, if God is not responsible for our sin, then who is the source of temptation? Look at the text in verse 14. And it begins a transition here, but verse 14, it marks a contrast and the real reason for temptation will now follow. So I take you from the rejection stated to the reason given to the reality clarified, the reality clarified. Look at the text though for a moment in verse 14. It says, but each person, stop there just for a second. It stresses the universal experience of temptation. Nobody is exempt from this. There is no such thing, you understand this, as a get-out-of-temptation-free card. Each of us, the text says. Now, look at it again in verse 14, is tempted. Now, we're looking at that word parasmos in verse 14, and obviously, it's not addressing a trial. It's addressing a temptation with evil intent. And he is tempted, here's the real culprit, by his own, what? Desire. Okay? By his own desire. Now, it's interesting there, if you look at 14 again, he's enticed by his, I'm just looking at the wording, his own desire. In other words, it's an individual lust of each person may be different, right? One person's passion may be another person's repulsion, but we're tempted here, and the source of temptation, you see it, is not God. Where's the source in verse 14? What is it? It's our own desire. It's our own lust. Okay? Now now watch this. Sin always involves a process in which the lust operates. Okay? Or in which the desire operates. You say, well, Scott, how does it operate in us? Well, I'm going to show you how temptation follows a process every single time. And what James is doing is he just wants to be clear. It's not God. It's your own desire. So let's look at this process. First, number one, lust, sinful desire. Lust, sinful desire. And if you want to make a little note, I call this the inward mechanism. Okay, it's going to lead to a deception, secondly, but it always begins with an inward mechanism. Now, look again down at verse 14. You're enticed by your own desire. Now, the NASB says your own lust. Simply there, the, the Greek word is epithumia, okay? And epithumia, if you, that's the word for desire, It just speaks of a strong desire, okay? It speaks of a strong craving. Oftentimes when we say the word epithumia, we link it to the word lust, and I think that's okay. I'm reading from the ESV here, and it says by his own desire. Now let me just state this for you. Not all desire is wrong, at least biblically. Some desire is healthy. Some desire is good. In other words, you're not tempted by God. You're tempted here by desire. This is a renegade desire, but there are good desires. So You say, well, like what, Scott? Well, there's a lot of them. 1 Timothy 3.1. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work that he, you know what it says? Desires to do. If you want to be an elder, if you want the office of an overseer, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. That's a healthy desire. That's a godly desire. Jesus used this word for desire in Luke 22, 15, where he said to the disciples the night before his death, where he said, I have earnestly desired... Luke twenty two fifteen 15, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So you could be a man of God, desire in the office and the work. That's a healthy desire. You could be Jesus who said, I have really desired to take this Passover with you. So some desires are holy. Some desires are profitable. But here, right, in this context... In the book of James, the thought is towards an evil desire for a sinful pleasure, okay? John might describe that as the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the boastful pride of life. Now, you're familiar, and I'm just trying to explain this to you. You say, well, why would I explain it to you? Well, because if you don't understand how temptation works, you'll not be able to overcome it. All temptation begins where? Not with God, it begins where? In your own heart. It begins with a renegade desire. It's what we call an evil desire. Do you remember when Paul said in Galatians 5, 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the what? The desires of the flesh. In other words, this is the inward mechanism. You are not tempted by God. You are tempted when your sinful desire is carried away and enticed. I'm thinking, let me show you some of these. Look over in Romans just for a second. In Romans chapter 1, it speaks there of these desires. And it's speaking here of a dishonoring desire. And certainly this is apropos for our community in which what we're dealing with in our nation now, when it's talking about people who exchange what is right, it says in 124, therefore God gave them up, here's the word, in the lust of their, what? Hearts to impurity. God gives some people over. He gave them over to the lust of their heart. But listen, that's not how people were born. He gives people over To their lust or to their desires. But that's not how they were wired. Look what it says. To impurity. 124. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. In fact look over at Romans chapter 6. In verse 12. There it says very clearly. When it's talking about what we're to do. How we're to be dead to sin alive to God. It says in 6.12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its, what? Passions. You say, well, Scott, how, how does it, wh- what do you mean? Well, you're not to let sin reign in your body that you would obey its passion. You say, what are those passions? Well, they're sinful desires. And they come from the inside. Look over at Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. In verse 14, I love this statement where it says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its what? Desires. And so these are those renegade desires. First John speaks of them when it says for all that is in the world and then it packs it this way. The desires of the flesh, that's an evil desire, the desires of the eyes, that's an evil desire at that point, and the pride of life. So where do these sinful desires come from? And and the best way that I can say is as a believer, they come from how I would call it is our unredeemed flesh. In other words, you could be a believer, but you're still living with unredeemed flesh until you get to glory. So you can move about in your life, and here's how sin works. Let me say it this way. It always begins with an inward sinful desire for self-gratification and self-exaltation. And I would say very practically to you, sin begins in the imagination. It begins with a sinful desire, okay? I don't know another way to say it you, because if you're, if you're forewarned, you could be forearmed. So I have a friend. Let me, let me give you this. I'm not sure if I told you this. My pastor friend called me. He's asking about a pastor on his staff. Here's the count. But I get what happens. He's driving his car and he's in another, another county altogether, maybe hours away. This particular man, and I know him, he struggled with pornography early on. He saw things as a teenager that he should not have saw. He got absolute victory for about 10 years in a row. And he walks in a gas station, drives in. He gets gas. He's going to go inside. He's going to pay for the gas. But as he's inside the the. the the station to pay for it and to go get a drink, he he sees the magazines. And there they are. And he's brought face-to-face with something that he's not glanced at for 10 years. And he's tempted to go over there. Now, what I want to help us understand, what is it that's pulling him over there? That's external. I get that. You get that. It's a renegade lust. It's in your heart. It's You still have what I call unredeemed flesh. It's not just that he had a problem when he's a teenager. There's still sinful desires. Some desires are good. This is a sinful one. So he makes a stupid decision. He's drawn. He's taken. He goes over there. He, he grabs the, the, the filth, if you will. He comes up to the counter. He pays for his gas. He pays for the drink. He puts the magazine down. He buys that. He goes outside. He partakes of sin. I'm just trying to ha- you say, what is it? Now listen, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. You don't have to have your PhD. You don't have to be a clinical psychologist. It happens to the same way with everyone. It always begins with a desire. It begins with a renegade desire. And if you don't shut down that inward mechanism with truth, you're going to go down a path and you'll get taken further down than you ever want to go. So he goes out to his car. He looks at it. And within five minutes, a flood of guilt comes on him. What a knucklehead. What an idiot I am. He picks up his cell phone. He confesses to his wife listen, I've not done this in 10 years and I just committed sin and you'd think it's all done, but it's not all done because the person behind the counter didn't say anything, but thinks I know him. I've been in worship concerts with him. And she picked up the phone after he left and called his senior pastor, which is my friend. And my friend called me and said, what do you think we ought to do with this guy? I mean, be sure your sin's going to find you out. But I tell you that story to help you understand how does that work? Well, I don't know how that works. No, no, no. This is how it works every time. And for you young men that are in here, you got to get a handle on this because you're going to have these desires in you. And if you got to check them at the door. So when David, at the time when kings, you know it, are supposed to be at battle, and he's out on his palace, and he's out on his roof, and he looks down and he sees who? Bathsheba. Now, it said that she was beautiful. I'm sure she was beautiful. But you say, what is that? It's sin that wells up in his heart. And you've got to learn to shut that down. What James is doing is, I hope you can see it, don't blame that on God. Don't blame that on God. That comes out of the inside of you. I mean, I I just think of so many people who've got taken away and taken down this way. The desire is the source of our temptation, not God. And let me just say this to you. It's not the devil. I don't find the devil anywhere here in James chapter one. He's in James chapter four, because I'm thinking about people and the comedian that I grew up with listening to named Flip Wilson, when he said the devil made me what do it. The devil doesn't make you do anything. He doesn't make anybody do anything. Sin begins in your heart, and it begins with a renegade desire. And at some point, you just got to be able to shut that down or take that thought captive. Or maybe, maybe David should have called his aide and said, hey, go tell that woman that she shouldn't be out there. But what does he do? He always goes the next step, right? Because sin will never stop. It leads you down a path. And if you don't shut it down, it's going to take you further and faster and more than ever you will ever, ever want to be. You say, well, then what happens next? Well, it says in James that you're lured and that you're carried away. But that's got to be for next time, okay? So here it is. We'll pick that up. Um, So vital. Next week, we'll have the going away for Jeremy, and then I'll pick it back up on dove season, okay, on September 1st. So make sure these are so important for our messages.